everybody. Welcome to the 32nd edition of the PR Masters Series. I'm Mark Stevens, your host. I'm also managing partner of the Stevens Group, a leading facilitator of mergers and acquisitions in the PR and digital interactive space. The PR Masters podcast honors living legends in our profession, individuals who have made a mark in the world of public relations. And we have a very special guest today. He is Dick Martin. And Dick, who spent 33 years at AT AT&T and retired with the rank of executive vice president responsible for the company's public relations, employee communications, and brand management worldwide. Dick Martin is an author of five books about public relations. He's a frequent speaker, and most recently he wrote a biography of Marilyn Laurie, his predecessor at AT AT&T, and the first woman to become a policymaking officer at a Fortune 10 company. The book is called Marilyn, A Woman in Charge, and it will be published by the PR Museum Press on September 8th. Marilyn Laurie passed away earlier this new century, but became one of the most famous women in corporate America. Her story is an amazing one, and Dick is here today to shed light on her career and legendary status as well as his own. So welcome to the PR Masters podcast series, Dick. I'm so glad you could join us. Well, thank you, Art. It's good to be here, although I don't classify myself as uh, a legend or uh, even a PR master, but Marilyn certainly was. Well, given your rank as well, I think you qualify. I surely do, and I think our (laughs) listeners will after we've had a chance to chat. So, Dick, you've, you've written several books in the past, as I mentioned, at least five books, and this is your first biography. Tell our listeners, what compelled you to write it, and why Marilyn, and why now? Well, I, I was asked to give a talk about Marilyn as part of a conference during Women's History Month uh, a while ago. And it was uh, at the height of the Me Too movement, so I tried to relate the talk uh, to, to that issue and did a little research. And it struck me as I was preparing the talk that if Me Too is only about sexual harassment, Marilyn really had no claim to it as far as I could tell. But if it was about gender stereotyping, she could have been its poster child. Um, Much to my surprise, I discovered that her career was bookended by sexism. And uh, as she rose in her career, she had to put up with a lot of gender stereotyping. And uh, uh, so I thought it it made the talk timely. it also gave me the idea that maybe this ought to be a book because I, I thought it, it was of timely uh, interest and it might give people some insight into not only the practice of public relations at the highest levels, but also into the personal costs and the professional challenges that uh, came along with uh, achieving that rank. So. Tell us about Marilyn. You obviously had the opportunity to know her, and uh, obviously you did a tremendous amount of research on the book. And by the way, I did read the book uh, over this past weekend as part of my homework for our podcast today. It is a spectacular book, I must tell our listeners. And they, you all must purchase this book just to understand the role that Marilyn played in the, in the life of so many that uh, came after her. Uh, so they, tell us what her life was like, and uh, as detailed in your book, and and uh, what 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 Marilyn can teach us about uh, say let's start with the subject of crisis management. What can we, what can we learn 
from the way that she handled crisis management. In fact, one that I found particularly interesting, and I don't know if you want to start with that, but the one I found particularly interesting when I read the book was how she dealt with the crash of the AT&T network. Well, Marilyn's life was full of lessons for everybody, um, no less herself. Uh, the last eight years of her career uh, represented a cascade of crises, and the first one, the network failure uh probably gave her more uh, insight into how to deal with a crisis than any of the others. Um, I don't know if uh, your listeners remember, but back in 1990, uh, the whole AT&T long-distance network stopped working. It just it just went dead, um, which was uh, uh, an unbelievable event to a, a lot of people. They couldn't make a long-distance call on the AT&T network, something that uh, they thought of as always there. In fact, people thought it was so reliable that when they got a, a, a wrong number, they assumed they dialed wrong, not that something went wrong in the network. So it was a big deal. lasted about nine hours. And, of course, Marilyn was in the thick of it, uh, and she used the classic uh, crisis management tactics, you know, tell the truth, tell it fast, take responsibility, fix the problem quickly, but that kind of thing. But she, she added a, a, a fifth principle to it because she felt that people's relationship with the phone company uh, was unique. Uh, they, they trusted it implicitly. And when it failed, it constituted a betrayal. They, they just felt they had been let down by something that uh, they had great confidence in. And she came to the conclusion that uh, making a, a heartfelt apology simply wasn't enough, that uh, the company had to do more. Uh, it had to give something back. So she convinced the leaders of AT&T to get permission to offer discounted long-distance service on Valentine's Day, which was just a few weeks after all of this, what a all great of this idea. happened. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a clever idea, and it, uh, it, it won a lot of, uh, a lot of friends. And um, we measured uh, consumer attitudes towards AT&T on a regular basis, and we were surprised that uh, the public's uh, attitude towards AT&T's reliability uh, and quality really didn't waver through that whole period. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people correctly ascribed it to the way it was handled by Marilyn and by uh, uh, the, the whole company. But the insight she got from it was that public relations' biggest role in any crisis isn't so much what it says and um, you know, telling the truth and taking responsibility and apologizing and all that. But it was understanding the context of public sentiment in which you're uh, operating, uh, what people are feeling, as well as what they say they're thinking. And she really capped into that. She had an unusual ability, I think, to think orthogonally or at least that's what I call it. She always came at a problem from a, a unique angle. And it took me a while to realize that she was coming at it from the angle, not of the company, 
but of the people affected. And she had great sensitivity, a great gut for what people were really feeling in any given situation. And that informed uh, a lot of uh, her behavior and, and certainly what we said. So, Dick, Mar- Marilyn was the uh, the uh, nation's first woman to become chief corporate communications officer. Um, that must have been an extraordinary feat at such a male-oriented company, to say the least. Now, how, how did this liberal Jewish girl from Bronx get to head what was then the largest PR department in the world? Well, it was a combination of talent meeting opportunity. Um, AT&T was a very patriarchal company, even though it was called Ma Bell, but that was true of all uh, AT&T's corporate peers as well. And there weren't many women working, period, uh, back in the early 70s. Um, Public attitudes towards women who had children working were quite negative. Two-thirds of the public thought it was wrong for a woman with uh, children to work outside the home. It's uh, exactly the opposite now. Um, She worked because uh, she found meaning in a career uh, even more than uh, in domestic life, which isn't to suggest she didn't love her two daughters and her husband. She certainly did, but she got most of her true meaning from um, making a difference on a grand scale. And that's what drove her she was whip smart, but when she joined AT&T, she did not have a lot of public relations experience. Uh, she had been one of the people to mount the first birthday celebration in New York City, and that led to the appointment uh, to the Mayor's Council on the Environment, and that led to a job working for the New York Times Foundation writing a supplement uh, for the celebration of the second birthday, and uh, that attracted the attention of AT&T, and they hired her to run an employee recycling program. Uh, but uh, she she really didn't understand PR. Uh, for example, her next job was in media relations, and she didn't know how a newsroom worked. She had never written a news release. But she did know that most people got their news from television. And AT&T did very little in the broadcast area at that time. So she came up with the idea of training AT&T executives to handle a news interview on TV. And her boss accepted it. She hired Chet Berger to help her do it. And she ended up spending the next year and a half to two years working directly with the top executives of AT&T, training them on how to handle a, a, a media interview. She did that in every job she was given. She she didn't know the normal way to do things, so she invented a new way or found a hole that, that she could fill. Uh, in that sense, uh, when I say it was a talent uh, meeting opportunity, she was creating a lot of these opportunities herself. And she was totally fearless. Uh, there was a job opening at Bell Labs Bell Labs at that point was the world's leading R&D institution. It was led by a flinty uh, Englishman who was very suspicious of PR, uh, felt PR people tried to violate the laws of physics when they were describing things, and uh, nobody else in AT&T PR 
wanted that job, um, she took it. <laughs> and she did so well that that the flinty Englishman promoted her to uh, a vice president uh, in uh, two or three years. She became only the sixth female vice president in the whole million-person bell system. Wow. She uh, she was really a very she was an incredible person. So, Dick, did you did you precede her? At uh, AT&T, uh, were you there before her? No, we started at about the same time. I started in 1970. She started in 71. And uh, I, I, she, I was one of the people she used in uh, media training for a while. Um, our paths crossed numerous times over the next uh, decades. Um, in 1987, I started reporting to her. And uh, I was lucky enough to succeed her uh, in '97. So, what was the reaction within the uh, PR organization of AT&T, including yourself, when she was appointed to this uh, lofty position? Well, in a sense, it was a natural progression. Uh, I think most people in PR felt that way. Now, I should add that uh, going from the very lowest level in PR to an officer in, what was it, I guess 13 years or something, uh, was, a, was being on a very fast track, and that created some uh, measure of resentment in, in the PR organization. There were some people who felt she got ahead because she was a woman and the company needed to put more women in higher levels. And there were other people who felt she got ahead despite being a woman because she uh, had the same style as uh, stereotypical male uh, uh, PR people. Um, I think overall, most people uh, expected her to get that top job because she worked so hard and she was so, so, so smart. Um, now, there were some people outside of public relations who uh, were skeptical of her. Uh, some were downright hostile, uh, particularly when she overruled them or wouldn't go along with some of their plans. But I think over the years, um, she won the trust of her internal clients. And uh, also the, uh, the affection and respect of the people who reported to her. But I, I have to admit, I suspect she felt it was a bumpy ride. <laughs> well, I imagine she, being a pioneer as she was, certainly uh, as a woman, uh, it certainly had to be a bumpy ride. What was, what was your relationship with her? How was it like working with her and then for her? What was she well, like she was very, you know, on, on, on the day-to-day -day basis? Well, she was very demanding, uh, but she was no more demanding than some of the men that I worked for. She was also uh, empathetic, um, about as empathetic as any of the women that I worked for. Um, she always wanted to do better, no matter what you did, no matter how successful it was. She wanted to engage you in a conversation about how it could have been better, how you could have done something um, faster or uh, more creative. 
creatively. I mean, she was never satisfied. I, I later learned uh, when, when she and I became friends after she retired that, um, not that we weren't friendly before, but, you know, we have a different relationship with you not working for somebody. Um, when she was a child, uh, she was very precocious. She started school when she was four and a half. At some mm-hmm. point, they gave uh, IQ tests, and hers was 155, which was pretty high, uh, I, uh, I think. Um, she uh, caught hell for not being not getting 160 because that uh, was the top of the uh, scale, and somebody else in her class had gotten it. And she told me she came home one day with a, a report card with all 99s. And her mother said, what, for one more point, you couldn't have gotten a few hundreds? Mm-hmm. So she was kind of trained to always try to do better. And much of her life, I think, was kind of like an argument with that younger version of herself. She also realized that she skipped grades all through elementary school. So she was always the youngest person in the room. And uh, I think that taught her how to behave when you're the youngest person in the room and later the only woman in the room. Uh, So she was very conscious of feeling like an outsider. Um, That was kind of an advantage because it gave her an opportunity to look at what was going on around her objectively and to offer objective advice. But it probably also came at a cost. It sounds like she learned how to fight also, as well as how to behave, being the youngest uh, person and and also being perhaps the only woman in the room. But she probably learned ways to to get her viewpoint known and to to present such intelligent logic that I guess a lot of her viewpoints were, were totally accepted. Yeah, well, that's very true. She was very outspoken. If she felt strongly about something, um, she would stand up for it. She was very articulate. And um, she very often uh, won arguments simply by the force of both her personality and the force of her arguments. But uh, she she never took ad hominem shots at anybody. I mean, she was she, – she stuck to the business at hand. Um, fearless in in many ways you know a lot lot of uh, uh, corporate communications officers uh, then and now you know lament the fact that they don't have access or sufficient access to the CEO she seemed to get that you know I mean I think a lot of people certainly those in the Arthur Page Society which consists of uh, mostly corporate communications officers could learn some valuable lessons from Marilyn in this book, actually. Uh, you know, what got her to, the, to get a seat at the table with the CEO? And I know that, you know, uh, Bob Allen is one of the CEOs she worked with, and I, you mentioned Bob Allen in the book. Um, and it, your book details incidents when uh, he sought her advice and counsel before he took an action. What made him do that? Well, she and Alan uh, didn't hit it off uh, at the very beginning. Uh, Alan inherited the role of CEO when his predecessor died unexpectedly, and uh, in addition to inheriting the office, he inherited Marilyn. And uh, he uh, he and she had a kind of a tentative relationship initially. Uh, she had to adjust her management style, which uh, – 
was very aggressive and outspoken to his, which was much more deliberate than his predecessor's over, uh, predecessor style. But she won him over by demonstrating that she understood the business that AT&T was in as well as anyone else on the senior team. And she knew the outside world better than anybody else on the senior team. So when she offered advice, it was based on her understanding of public sentiment of the major uh, trends in society and in the economy. And she could always put it in the proper context for him so that when it was time to make a decision, he had a better context within which uh, to make it. Uh, she developed that kind of relationship with all the members of the senior team individually. Uh, so she wasn't, uh, she may have been the only woman in the room for many decades, but they began to think of her as another senior officer who happened to be a woman, not a woman who happened to be a senior officer. Now, I should add that while she did offer her counsel, it wasn't always followed. I mean, there were several instances where she was very definitive about what Bob Allen, for example, ought to do, and he just didn't agree. So he didn't do it, and it was held today. I mean, the best example is uh, in 1995, AT&T announced uh, that it was going to split into three companies, and then at the beginning of 96, it announced that because it was splitting into three companies that was going to eliminate 40,000 positions. Well, that raised, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, hackles. She had argued that the news release should not lead with the number of positions being announced, but nobody listened to her. We got a lot of negative press, but it wasn't the end of the world. Then in February, um, she discovered that the, stock options that she and Bob Allen and other senior executives had been granted uh, when they first announced the breakup of the company would be announced in the uh, annual report in the 10K. And in Bob's case, it, it, the uh, Black Scholes value was $10.8 million dollars. In addition to his uh, $6 million salary, and her argument was, look, I know it was approved by the board back in September, but nobody was anticipating that it would be announced at the same time we announced 40,000 positions being eliminated, because back then nobody knew it was going to be 40,000 positions. You really ought to return the options or find some way to give them back. Bob um, refused to do it because he said it was just optics and people would understand. He wouldn't get anything for the options for four years. And only then, if the stock price went up 20% and so forth and so on, all very rational arguments. But he was missing the emotional impact of what uh, of taking the, the options, and she couldn't convince him of it. So he did it, and that began the slide in his whole career. I mean, for a year, he was pilloried for being a corporate killer, the uh, incarnation of corporate greed, none of which was deserved. I mean, he was actually a very uh, principled person who cared deeply about uh, employees. He, he wasn't greedy at all, 
but for that one mistake, he paid for it. Mm. Should have listened to Marilyn. <laughs> well, in that so case, how, many CEO, yeah. how many CEOs did uh, uh, Marilyn report to during her tenure at, at the top of, of the uh, corporate communications post at AT&T? Uh, two. Uh, to Ooh, Bob, oh, okay. Well, you know, Jim Olson, who was Allen's predecessor, and Bob Allen, and uh, she retired. Uh, well, I guess also Mike Armstrong. She retired during Mike Armstrong's tenure. So many women over the years, of course, uh, when Marilyn uh, uh, was in the position uh, that she had at AT&T, they regarded her as a role model for them. Did Marilyn at the time realize that she was having an impact on women in business, which she most assuredly did? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, as she rose through the ranks, she was careful not to come off as a so-called women's liver. She just dressed as she would normally dress, sometimes in pantsuits, but more often in, uh, in a skirt and a blouse. Um, it wasn't until the early 1990s that she spoke up in an executive committee meeting about promoting more women. They had uh, gone through a list of about a dozen people who were candidates to be promoted to vice president. And at the end of it, she realized that all the women had been set aside because they lacked this or that experience or it was uncertain whether they had such and such uh, uh, and expertise, and she said, hey, you know, I just noticed that uh, when women, uh, when there were questions about women, uh, we eliminated them, but when there were questions about men, we assumed they would be able to get by. I think we really ought to take another look at this, and it led to a very long discussion about the pipeline, women in the pipeline, and about the diversity at the highest levels and uh, didn't make any changes that year, but in the later years, women started moving into uh, uh, not only the role of vice president, but vice president of uh, businesses with P&L responsibility. And uh, from that point on, women, start, uh, women started taking positions of much greater responsibility and accountability in AT&T. So in a sense, she was... Uh, kind of like a lighthouse on, on that whole issue. Maybe a foghorn wouldn't be a bad analogy either. So how many, how many people uh, overall were there, you know, at its prime in, in the uh, various departments that uh, reported to Maryland? Well, in the late in the nineties, it was, I think about 500 people, 500 yeah. people. God, she, she managed a, a, a department that's probably larger than most public relations agencies out there today. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, yeah, of course. And her predecessor, Ed Block, back in the Bell System days, uh, had a uh, PR people, he had a team of PR people of about a thousand PR people around the country. Uh, Maryland had PR people around the country as well as around the world. And uh, uh, Did Maryland work yeah. with any uh, outside agencies? Oh, sure, particularly in uh, areas uh, requiring a, an expertise that we didn't have. And she certainly brought uh, PR agencies in to consult on uh, various issues when we had uh, the cell phone health scare back in the early 90s. She brought in uh, Burson Marsteller, 
Um, and Edelman did some work for us, a company in Washington called DCI did some work. Um, yeah, we, we brought in uh, PR agencies, but for the most part, um, it was a self-contained uh, internal public relations organization. Didn't uh, Spectre PR play some role in working with you? Um, Shelley Spectre is, an, is a dear friend of mine. She used to be part of my firm, Lopes and Stevens, at one point. And uh, I know that uh, you know she she's had her own agency for a number of years, and uh, I believe she got to know Marilyn pretty well herself, from what I understand. Oh yeah, no question. Uh, Spectre and Associates was one of those specialized agencies that uh, I was referring to. Uh, worked uh, not only for Marilyn, but for me, for that matter, uh, on a number of a uh-huh. uh, number of programs. It was uh, one of the things Marilyn really. Uh, tried to get her organization to do was to come up with some big ideas. Uh, and a big idea to her was an initiative that had application across the whole organization that everybody could embrace and that would break through the clutter of all the competing messages, not only that other companies are delivering, but that even the AT&T was delivering. Um, one of those ideas was the first telecommuting day. Um, which came up internally, but uh, implementing it in the amount of time we had required outside resources, and Spectre Associates was an integral part of uh, of that whole initiative and uh, made it highly successful. And there were other examples as well with other smaller agencies uh, on other programs. I just want to ask you a couple more questions about Marilyn, and then I'd like to talk to you uh, about you, rather, Dick, for a little bit. Um, did you uh, uncover any surprises with any any surprises you came across while researching the book about Marilyn or any of the world she existed in? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the surprises to me, things I didn't uh, I didn't know. Um, you know, I had access to her oral history. Uh, for AT&T, which is in the AT&T archives, as well as oral histories she did for the Author Page Center in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, she left a lot of uh, notes that she wrote by hand in uh, her final days while she was going through uh, cancer treatment. And she had 29 file boxes of records in uh, in the archives, and I read every page in those 29 file boxes. And I ran across, uh, in addition, I, I talked to her two daughters and her sister and uh, very dear friends. Uh, and in the process, I discovered uh, a woman who was much more complicated than I thought. I mean, I, I thought I knew Marilyn well. I'd worked with her for 30 years, after all, and uh, I, I thought, thought I knew her. But um, no, there was a lot more there than I suspected. Now, somebody has told me every man in the world is going to discover that the women close to them are more complicated than they thought, which I su- suppose is true. But uh, it was especially true in her case. It was a lot about her uh, childhood I didn't didn't realize. Uh, you know, she was a second-generation immigrant. Um, as I said, she was quite precocious and skipped a lot of grades in school. Um There were very few girls in her neighborhood. She lived on the Grand Concourse in a beautiful building that's still there called the Fish House. It has this glass mosaic 
style uh, entrance uh, to, to the building, Art Deco in, in style. But there were not many girls in that neighborhood. Her sister was seven years older than her and had her own bunch of friends. So Marilyn ended up playing uh, street games with the boys and got very used to competing with the boys. Very upset when her mother, when junior high was an all-girls school, and uh, was even more upset when her mother insisted she go to Barnard, which was then an all-girls college. She had already enrolled herself at NYU, and they had a uh, uh, little conflict. When she was hired by AT&T, they originally told her that she would make $12,000 a year and she would be a C-level manager, which is third level. AT&T has seven levels. She would be a third level manager. The night before she started, her boss called and said, uh, well, you know, there's been a change. Marilyn said, what change? He said, well, you're not going to be, remember I told you you were going to be a C-level? Uh-huh. You're going to actually be a B-level. And she said, well, what's the salary? He said, well, the salary's the same. You have $12,000, just, just a different letter. And so she said, fine. She showed up. And what she didn't know for a couple of years was that AT&T simply didn't hire women off the street, as they say, at mm. that level, at that third level. Wow. So she was a second level. Um, about the same time that she joined the company, the government sued AT&T, for discriminatory policies toward women and minorities, and AT&T eventually settled it out of court, and Marilyn got promoted and moved into media relations. That's interesting. Wow. wow. She never, she, uh, when she was uh, a senior vice president uh, of uh, communications at uh, public relations, uh, AT&T Communications, which was the long-distance business, her former client, Jim Olson, became CEO, and the head of human resources had uh, had decided to leave. So Olson wanted to make Marilyn the head of human resources because he was very impressed with her uh, thoughts on corporate culture and how it needed to change at AT&T, and he wanted her to become uh, an engine of cultural change. So he told the direct reports to him that he was going to make Marilyn head of human resources. One of the other senior officers, the CFO at the time, came in to see Olson and he said, you know, I like Marilyn a lot, but I think some of the other senior officers would be uncomfortable if she were responsible for setting their salaries and talking to the board about their performance. So Olson reluctantly agreed, and he moved the head of public relations into the HR job. I had only been there five months, and put Marilyn in the public relations job. <laughs> she, she didn't know this until after she had retired, when she was having oh dinner with with some senior officers and their spouses, and the CFO who had made that uh, suggestion to Olson told Marilyn about it. He was not, it wasn't a scintilla of embarrassment when he told her. And she couldn't believe it. She really couldn't believe it. Uh, so, yeah, those are the, some of the surprises. Things are learned. 
that have a, an effect on your career <laughs> that you didn't know about. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Dick, I, I want to spend the remainder of our time um, uh, just talking about you. You know, obviously you have held uh, a top-level position at uh, AT&T, and uh, you followed in the footsteps of uh, Marilyn Laurie, uh, which I'm sure wasn't that easy to do. But, uh, you know, you, you, you did it, of course. Um, what, what determined your leaving AT&T and uh, kind of doing new things? What, what, is it, it wasn't, was it mandatory retirement? Did they have that kind of thing there? No, no. When I, uh, I was, I was uh, uh, very lucky to get uh, to succeed Marilyn, although she was a tough act to follow. Um, she had promoted me to officer uh, some years before. And uh, throughout my career, I always enjoyed writing. The thing I uh, I got the most satisfaction out of was was writing. And when I became an officer, uh, there was less and less, fewer and fewer opportunities to write. I could write an occasional speech, but most of what I did was management, counseling, editing, but not not writing. So when I was asked to become chief communications officer by Mike Armstrong, I told him I'd be honored to take the job, but he should understand that I planned on retiring early. In fact, uh, Armstrong was just going to be there for five years. I told him I was going to retire when he did. And he said, well, how old will you be? And I said, well, I'll be 58. He said, that's pretty young. What do you plan to do? And I told him whether he succeeded or failed in turning AT&T around, it would make a great book, and I planned to write it. And so I took the job with that understanding. And by the way, everybody on the senior team knew that was my plan. Uh, in fact, people would tell me at uh, uh, board meetings, uh, this is going to make a great chapter in your book or something like that. So, um, in fact, when I did, I did retire when Mike left, and my first book was called Tough Calls, uh, and it was a kind of a, a memoir of that period of my life at AT&T. But the biography I wrote of Marilyn is, is my sixth book. Uh, it, it covers some of the same territory as Tough Calls, but I am not in it as much. It's, it's about Marilyn. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you you were with AT&T for like 33 years. What 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 kept you going there? I'm 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 sure other job offers came along, but obviously you you seem very dedicated and devoted to that company. Well, I was probably the last gener in the last generation of company lifers. Uh, people just don't stay with companies that long anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and I honestly didn't plan to stay 33 years, but every time I answered a headhunter's call and considered leaving, I was promoted. Uh, into a new job. And the fact is the company kept changing and I kept getting new opportunities. It was like working for, a, you know, to move from the manufacturing side of the business to the long distance side of the business it was like working for a different company. So I, I never, uh, I never had an opportunity to get bored. I always had something interesting to work on new problems. Solving problems is, uh, is fun. And uh, I, I had fun until the uh, last day that I uh, that I worked there, despite uh, the cascade of disasters that I had to deal with, just like uh, just like Marilyn did. Luckily, I had her model to uh, to emulate. 
Dick, how, is, how has public relations changed during the course of your uh, long career at AT&T and what you have observed not only there, but in, in the world of public relations generally? Well, everything has changed. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing as I look back. The, the biggest change during my tenure was the rise of digital media during the 1990s. I mean, websites were a new medium. Blogging was just starting. Um, when I retired, Facebook, Twitter, and the, the iPhone didn't even exist yet. So it, it's, uh, it's like a, a different world now. Uh, the second big change was the acceleration of, uh, of demographic change, not only in terms of the growth in communities of color, but also in changing family structures, you know, same-sex marriages, single-parent households, a decline in, in birth rates. Those, those have been tremendous changes. And, of course, starting in the 1980s, there was a rapid growth in economic inequality and a reduction of social mobility which I think was a product of companies' myopic focus on what they call shareholder value and uh, sort of an epidemic of short-term thinking rather than uh, managing for the long term. And, of course, now, because of the pandemic, there's been a sharp increase in telecommuting and acceleration of e-commerce and who knows what other cultural and social changes we haven't even noticed uh, will endure once this is all all settled. So given all you know, this, how, that, how do you feel that the role of the corporate communications officer has changed over the years? Well, I think it really underlines the importance of public relations role in helping put business decisions in the proper context, social context, cultural context, political context. I think that's PR's biggest job, particularly at the higher levels. Um, you know, there, there are two parts of public relations. There's advocacy, uh, and there's simply listening and analyzing and counseling. And I think there's much more importance in that second part uh, of what we do than, than the first. That idea didn't originate with me. Marilyn once said this in a speech when she was receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award, and I think it's truer today than when she said it back in 2005 or six, whenever it was. So Dick, how do you spend most of your time these days? Do you do a lot of writing? Are you, I know you do some speaking, uh, public speaking uh, to, uh, within various uh, groups and organizations. Um, how are you keeping busy? Well, I'm retired, so the only people who have a call on my time are my wife, kids, and grandkids, and it's more freedom than I've ever had. I try to devote some of my time to the craft that gave me the financial security to be in this position, you know, the practice of public relations. When I retired, my wife thought I was afraid I'd never leave the house, so she made me start a book club, and we meet monthly and alternate between fiction and nonfiction, so I do a fair amount of reading. She also convinced me to start a small garden, so I do a fair amount of weeding. <laughs> and if there were no pandemic, I'd also be doing a fair amount of travel. But other than that, and regular consumption of movies and British TV, my primary interest is writing, and I hope to continue doing it. Well, not a bad life. Uh, Dick Martin, I'd like to thank you on behalf of our listeners um, I thank you for joining us today and for sharing not only your views, but obviously your 
uh, take on the great uh, Marilyn Laurie and the contribution she made to not only uh, corporate citizenry but to the public relations profession. Uh, the book, again, is called Marilyn, A Woman in Charge. You can order the book now on either PRMuseumPress.com or Amazon. It's a wonderful read. I can tell you that I read it myself over the weekend in preparation for this chat with Dick Martin today, and boy, what a read. It's like a novel. So I thank you all for joining us today and sharing your views with us. Dick Martin, once again, thank you for being with us today uh, and casting a wonderful light on the great Marilyn Laurie. And thank you all for tuning in to another of the Stevens Group PR Masters podcast series. Until next time, I'm Art Stevens, wishing you all the very best.